0: We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for AIR. John Fitzgerald has worked for decades as a researcher and a clinician. The majority of his professional life has been devoted to helping people with addiction to understand and overcome their addiction. He joined us for this conversation about the Five Actions Program, which he launched to address what he called the incredible gap of people needing treatment and not receiving it. We are super excited about the Five Actions Program, in part because we're all such fans of John's work. John has collaborated with Dominique and Allies on Recovery for years, and we really, really appreciate his expertise his deep compassion, and his aim to help people by putting tools and important information into their hands. Listen in and learn about this new and very promising online program designed for the individual who struggles with addiction. The program is currently free to all residents of the state of New Mexico and we are hoping that other states will soon follow their lead. Check the show notes for instructions on how to gain access. Enjoy!
1: hi everyone this is laurie back on coming up for air um, today i have my co-host with me isabel hi isabel how are you doing i'm great laurie it's great to be here and today isabel and i have a um, a guest uh, john fitzgerald i'm going to um, let him uh, kind of give us an idea of what his um, credentials are what his title is, and um, hi John, how are you?
2: Good. Hi Lori. Hi, can, can you just you? get?
1: Can you just give us a quick overview? Like, what is what is your title? Are you a? Um,
2: sure. So okay. I have a I have a master's degree in counseling psychology, and in Oregon, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and then I have a Ph.D. a doctoral degree in system science and social psychology. Um, I'm also a certified addiction specialist, CAS, um, and I'm on faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and I'm also on faculty in the Graduate Program of System Science at Portland State University.
1: Thank you. Um, we're here actually today to talk to, to talk to, um, I guess I, I should be calling you Dr. Fitzgerald.
2: No, you don't need to. You can call me John. You can, <laughs> okay. You can keep this informal.
1: Okay. Um, So I guess we are here to talk about your um, new website, Five Actions. Is it called Five Actions?
2: I'm calling it the Five Actions Program.
1: Okay, so it's the Five Actions Program, um, and I'm calling it actually the Brother Program. We're the Sister Program, so (laughs) Allies in Recovery is the Sisters Program, and the Five Actions Program is our Brother Program, Um, and it's designed for an individual that is trying to cope with substance use disorder. And um, before we get started and really kind of digging into what the website is all about, could you just give us an idea of how you got involved with substance use disorder? What drew you in or what inspired you to go into this field?
2: Sure, so I actually started off in the business world. um, And I think during that time period, um, I, I realized that, Uh, business wasn't necessarily the best fit for me because I started reading a bunch of books on psychology. I also had some family members and friends that had struggled with addiction. Um, It was probably in my early 20s that I I first sought out counseling for myself, and I realized it was a real benefit, and so uh, that's what led me back to graduate school, and when I went into the program, they had just started an addictions track, and I was very interested, so I did the addictions track, and I had always wanted to uh, do my internship at at the large teaching hospital here in Portland, Oregon, which is Oregon Health and Sciences University. And at the time they within the Department of Psychiatry, they had a clinic called the addiction treatment and training clinic ATTC, which at the time was one of the oldest addiction treatment clinics in the country. Uh, It was started by Ed Scott um, And I was fortunate to be able to get an internship there. And during the year of my internship, there were two things that really, I think, kind of set the stage for uh, what came, came after for me. One was that the director of the program really believed in treating the whole person. And at that time, a lot of people were being ping pong back and forth between mental health clinics and addiction clinics. Um, today, we, we, I think, have a much deeper understanding of the nature of co-occurring disorders, but back then, there were very few, the idea of integrated treatment and and being able to treat the whole person wasn't something that was happening. So during this year of my internship, the director came in and people who weren't on a licensure track so that that they didn't have an ability to work with mental health issues, uh, he let go, which, which was kind of a tumultuous time. And he said, we as a clinic are gonna become licensed to do both mental health and addiction. We're gonna have one evaluation and we're gonna treat the whole person. Um, He also changed the name of the clinic after over 50 years and we and called it the behavioral health clinic So that was all of that was really instrumental for me in really realizing that we need to treat the whole person the second was that um, Around that same time a report came out from the Institute of Medicine called bridging the gap between practice and research forging partnerships with alcohol and drug treatment programs Um, in this report it suggested that over the two to three decades leading up to this report that we had a tremendous amount of knowledge of of interventions from research that could help people yet they weren't being applied in practice there was this incredible gap so the antidote to this gap was to create what had been done in cancer research which was to create these trials where you would have a large university base and you would reach out to all of the practitioners that were doing treatment um, and connect the dots you'd have researchers and clinicians come together and start working together on behalf of patients. Um, And so following this report, uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse uh, created what's known as the uh, the National Drug Abuse Clinical Trials Network. And Oregon Health Sciences was one of the first five nodes. And again, this was all during the time that I was an intern and kind of growing up in this this time period. And it was very exciting because I was able to participate and meet a ton of researchers Uh, And again, I think for me, the foundation was that we need to find a way of bridging this gap between what we do with people who are struggling and suffering and what we've learned from the researchers. Um, So both of those things really set the stage. And then uh, I started seeing patients doing clinical work. I realized that uh, if I was going to run some of my own trials and studies, particularly if I was going to continue in the CTN, that I needed to uh, pursue a PhD. And at the time I didn't want to go back and work on a clinical degree so I ended up um, by by looking in my hometown for different programs and the one that was the best fit was was working on a phd in system science and social psychology I didn't really know much about system science but the way I like to describe it today is that system science is the science of solving complex problems and so for me, what better problem to try to solve than addiction, which, which we kind of call a wicked or a very challenging problem for a lot of people. And so uh, that was kind of the next phase for me was, was spending four or five years um, kind of learning about systems and leverage points and applying all of that to, uh, to addiction treatment. And uh, eventually following all of that, uh, I ended up by working in the pharmaceutical industry where I was doing research on prescription drug abuse all over the United States and that was probably the first time that it, it, it I, I really realized that in many, many areas where people needed treatment, it just didn't exist, particularly in a lot of urban and frontier areas. There were just no programs at all. Um, and I would say thats that was probably starting the, the origin for me of saying, why aren't we utilizing online technologies and developing things that we could reach out to populations of people that actually can't access anything? Um, so... Uh, it's probably more than you wanted to know, but um no, no a bit is, of, a bit of history
1: no, and this is good this is this is really good and i i um I agree with you being able to uh give the individual access in these like rural areas, and you are right, there is not a lot of treatment um across the country uh and also um there's also a lot of stigma, I think where people are scared and worried and stigmatized so much that they're afraid to go and get treatment and i think this option allows people that maybe don't have access to it maybe they don't have transportation or whatever it is whatever the barrier is at least something online uh, they can really dig in and, and do something for themselves
2: you're a family member and you are worried about your loved one, your child, your spouse, and you're looking for answers. I want to encourage you to log on to the five actions program and spend some time going through the videos, particularly the videos that resonate with you. You can you don't need to go in any order. You can look at the titles of the videos and how it's laid out. There's a lot of content but you can go in in any way that you want and connect with some of the videos, watch some of the content, see if it resonates with you, and it may help you to understand better the nature of the problem and what the solutions are that we have available.
0: Let's return to the conversation you're listening to on Coming Up for Air, produced in partnership with alliesinrecovery.net.
1: So can you just give us an overview of the Five Actions Program?
2: Sure, so uh, just to follow up on that, you know, part of the challenge of our current addiction treatment system is not only that there's many areas where there is no treatment available, but it's also the fact that we know from, um, we have a big federal study called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, that that really about 10% of people that could benefit from treatment actually receive it. And there's a lot of reasons, you mentioned some of those, about why people don't access treatment, transportation, not having insurance, um, one of the big barriers for people accessing treatment is also motivation that 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 in these um research studies when they ask people who they've already kind of qualified that they meet criteria for um you know a substance use problem and then they follow that up with would you like treatment about 90 to 95 percent of people say no they're not interested so we know that um there's a large population of people that struggle and suffer but but there's also a piece of this that's about their motivation um and when they follow up there's a lot of things that contribute to kind of that low motivation so i think part of my thinking around developing an online platform is that we can create kind of lower hanging fruit we can take away some of those barriers and make it available to people that motivationally might be on the fence um so the idea behind the five actions program has always been that for the end user um, you know, ideally, it's free or it's very low cost. So uh, people are not spending hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars to be able to access help. They're able to access either for free or for a very small amount of money. That's that's not a barrier for them to be able to get a hold of this program. The other is that it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, all year long. So we know that motivational windows open up that people you know, uh, wake up in the morning, they have a hangover, they had a really bad night and all of a sudden they're like, you know, I really think I need to do something about this. But it happens to be Sunday morning, everything's closed. So by having an online platform available that people are aware of, they can pop onto a program and they can start learning about addiction and they can learn about different types of treatment approaches to help them um, when they want to from from the comfort of their own home. They can do it at any time they want. It also in some ways addresses this idea of stigma that, that there are, you know, in small communities where you may only have one treatment program, um, sometimes people will stay away because they don't want to run into people that they know because of that stigma issue. And so a lot of these issues are addressed with with an online program. And so that a lot of that is what sort of led to kind of this idea of the five actions. Now, what are the five actions and, and how did that come about? Back when I was doing a lot of clinical work early on in my career, I started really looking at two things. One was that there was a lot of confusion about how we understand the problem, the nature of addiction. I remember back when I was an intern, even one of the things I did was I went around and I asked probably 20 people to tell me, how do you define addiction? And I ended up by getting 20 different answers. And I thought to myself, if we can't have some universally agreed-upon way of understanding this problem, how is it possible that we're ever going to make progress linking that to a variety of treatment interventions and strategies? Um, So That was one thing, was to think about how should we understand this as the nature of addiction, and we can maybe talk a little bit about that in a minute. But the idea is that how we understand the problem should link with the solution. So... As I started thinking more and more about the problem, I started thinking more and more about the solution and realizing that we have a whole bunch of different treatment strategies, but it's like throwing darts at a board. It was all over the map. And we would often talk about options. And what that started, it was probably during the time I was in my system science program, and I was thinking more about treatment from a system standpoint. And what emerged over a number of years was the idea that there are these five buckets or these five actions. And I I, I, I like the idea of action because it's really about what people do that helps them to get better. So the five actions really emerged out of this idea of, you know, what were the irreducible ingredients that people needed to really have successful outcomes? And the five actions that they're, uh, even though they're called actions, each action represents a bucket of different kinds of interventions and ideas. Um, so very briefly, the, what are the five actions? Action one is motivate. And the idea behind that is that um, that's where it all starts is motivation. Um, if somebody has no motivation to change their behavior at all, it becomes really hard to make progress. And so we know to some extent that addiction is a motivational problem. Um, we know that the brain gets hijacked in a way that, that constricts motivation and, and that becomes part of the challenge. So the five actions program begins with just the acknowledgement that that's where we're starting, which is how much motivation does somebody have to change their behavior and, and what's motivating. And how can we keep that motivational fuel tank filled so that people can continue to do what they need to do to have a good outcome with enough motivation. And and, and with somebody saying, I want to do something about this. The second action is evaluate. In my experience, evaluation becomes a really critical leverage point and being able to try to identify and understand what are the roots of somebody's addiction? What's driving it? One of the things I like to say is that addiction is adaptive. It's adaptive to something that's driving it. It just doesn't come out of nowhere. So the importance of the evaluation is for us to try to understand what was the origin of it and what continues to drive it. But it also goes back to what I said earlier, which is that we want to treat the whole person. So therefore, when we're doing an evaluation, we want to not only address addiction, but we want to address and evaluate the other co-occurring disorders. Um, This is probably where I'll say this probably multiple times, but this program addresses all addictions. So one of the things that became clear to me early on in my career was that one way that people define addiction is as substance use disorders. And, And it becomes very constricting to say that this program is a substance use program. I say that this program treats all addictions because one of the things that we've learned from research is that behavioral addictions sex, food, gambling, technology hijack the brain in similar ways as substances. And so in some ways, part of my clinical experience also is is that when somebody shows up for treatment, often they have a combination of both substance and behavioral addictions. Um, But that becomes really important to evaluate. I wanna know what are all of the different ways that you are using addictions to adapt in your life. Because if we go after one addiction only to have you continue to suffer and struggle with other addictions, we haven't really solved the problem. We just moved, kind of uh, pushed the balloon in one end and it's popped out the other. So what we really want in our outcomes is to address the entire package of addictive behavior. So evaluation is really important. Out of that evaluation, come three separate buckets where we want to look at interventions, the resolve bucket, the manage bucket, and the create bucket. The resolve and manage bucket are really about solving problems. They're, they're saying, what is it that, that uh, in the sense of, of symptoms and problems, what do we want to reduce or to go away? The third bucket, the create bucket is about what do we want to bring into somebody's life? Essentially, um, how can we improve the quality of their life? Now, one of the questions I get a lot is what is your program built upon? Is it evidence-based? And the model that I've used to kind of structure this whole program is known as the contextual model. It's one of the best models we have are theories for um, what is it that contributes to good outcomes from psychotherapy. So this is a this is a large model around looking at, at treatment and psychotherapy. And what this model suggests is that there are three pathways to good outcomes, and good outcomes being a reduction of symptoms and an enhanced quality of life. And the three pathways are, the first pathway is healing relationships. So in this model, the healing relationship would be the therapist. But if we broaden that, healing relationships can be a lot of things. It can be anybody who we can bring into your network to help you with what you're struggling with. The second is expectations, the idea that we really align ourselves between the problem and the solution. This gets back to what I said earlier, that if we understand addiction as just substances, and yet somebody on the side is gambling or acting out sexually or doing other things, then we haven't really got the problem correct. And so our solution, if we just focus on one part of that, isn't going to be a complete solution. So the second pathway is that we really working with people. We have to have an alignment around expectations. And the third pathway is then, okay, once you have a good relationship and you've got the expectations, right? Then you've got to do something. And this is really where we would say, this is where the evidence-based practices are. This is where you actually do the behaviors. This is really where the five actions fits in. And so in some ways, um, part of throughout the program, I am not arguing that people can go online and watch a bunch of videos and change their behavior. People need people to succeed when they if they're going to get through this program. And so throughout it, I try to emphasize that that I know potentially relationships in your life have been challenging. So part of the program is to try to get at why is that? Why is it that relationships have been challenging? And how can this program help you learn how to start connecting the dots? and learn how to have healthy, nurturing relationships in your life. Because without them, we know it's impossible to have a good life. A good life is built on healthy relationships. Um, The expectation piece gets built in this program in that the first part of the program is all about understanding the nature of addiction and where it came from. And then using that understanding of addiction to then go into the second half of the program and really work with these five actions.
0: You are listening to Coming Up for AIR, sponsored in part by alliesinrecovery.net. Here is a testimonial from an allies member. I must say I couldn't do craft effectively without the support of AIR. AIR is what's helped me to see how to apply craft in my situation. AIR has provided me clarity, strength, and encouragement when I needed it. AIR has kept me from reacting and helps me to think strategically about how to support my son. AIR is making a huge difference, and I can't thank you enough. Thanks to our partner, alliesandrecovery.net. Now back to coming up for AIR.
1: I want to just kind of stop you there and, and just um, hopefully kind of make a few connections between mm-hmm. like craft and everything that you're saying. Um, you talk about autonomy there's a lot of talk about autonomy in uh in your five actions plan which i think is it's huge um and it's a huge piece for our family members to or or the support system surrounding our loved ones to understand that autonomy is a human need right yeah. to right to be in control we're told constantly we're told as family members as well as our loved ones are told that we have to give up the power a lot right and to um uh to give it over to someone or to something else and i am not convinced of that i am convinced yeah. that really what needs to happen is I need to um, have, I do have power. I have power over myself and what I have to give up is trying to have power over someone else. (laughs) Right. And, and um, so it really, everything um, having been on the website and kind of going through these uh, um, videos that you have on there, autonomy happens to be one of the, um, one of the topics that really really stood out to me that isn't that exactly what happens between families or the people surrounding uh, our loved ones with substance use disorder is we're not allowing autonomy we're not allowing people to make decisions for themselves so and what i mean by that is like things like we insist that they have to they need a particular kind of treatment, and so no, you have to have that. you have to go into this treatment. it has to be residential or it has to be um, ninety days or they should be going in for a year versus giving them the option to pick or to i don't even i don 't even want to say the option to pick, but mm-hmm giving them the autonomy or empowering them to make decisions for themselves.
2: Yes, yes, um, all all valid. I I think, you know, in some ways, one of the things that I, I, I've realized throughout this whole time that I've worked in this field is that fear really permeates a lot of this, particularly for parents that get so worried. I, mean, I I'm a father, I have a 16-year-old son, and so when when fear takes over there's a part of us that wants to control and and to try to um you know motivate good outcomes particularly when it comes to our kids i I think in some ways part of this program goes deeper than other programs i've seen into the nature of trauma and, and and really the fact that trauma permeates so many families and and so for a lot of people who struggle with addiction there's a huge emphasis in this program on understanding trauma not necessarily the fact that everybody has diagnosable ptsd but the idea that trauma is an overwhelming emotional experience for that time point in life where the person doesn't have the capacities to deal with it it's overwhelming and when experiences are overwhelming The body and the brain take over and go on autopilot and in some ways help people get through traumas the problem is that there's a price to be paid in the brain and body when we've gone through trauma and part of that price is that our emotional development gets constricted in ways that we start going through life trying to to live more out of our head less out of our body because our body is it's it's painful to feel overwhelmed and we start trying to control things. We we start trying to to prevent being overwhelmed again. Because because feeling overwhelmed is painful, addictions nicely step in and become these adaptive processes that help people to sort of manage their um, unregulated emotion in their body from trauma. I think that parents who get caught up in wanting to help their kids with addiction are also being traumatized because at the heart of it is the fear that, um, you know, my loved one's gonna die. I mean, that, that drives mm-hmm. this fear and I'm gonna do whatever I can to prevent that.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
2: and so in that sense, I can convince myself that, that I know what's right, that you have to go to treatment, you have to do these 90 days, you have to get on this medicine. And we, in some ways, start getting very prescriptive and very controlling In some ways, because we have fear driving it. So, you know, I like what you said. The autonomy piece is really about options. And it's about, I think, again, going back and understanding what is this nature of this problem that I'm trying to solve here? What's driving it? And if what's driving this problem for my loved one is partly this underlying trauma that's untreated. And then for me being part of the family system where I also am being traumatized because I'm seeing somebody who I love going through something and I seem to, I don't have control over it. I can't control what they're doing to their body. In some ways, my body now is being traumatized and I'm gonna try to do whatever I can to get out of that state. And so often what I find is that, you know, with parents, when the kid goes into treatment, all of a sudden the anxiety goes down. I'm not being traumatizing Where they're safe, they're in treatment. Right. And yet, you know, recovery is more of a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so in some ways, part of this process for all of us, whether it's the person going through um, recovery and working on their own addiction or for parents, part of it is us dealing with our own trauma, our own fear, and also our grief, our loss, some of these very challenging emotions that i think in some ways we um um,
1: they run parallel
2: they they run parallel and and and, you know i think that's what we share in some ways as parents we share those with our kids that we don't want to feel overwhelmed and yet this whole experience is overwhelming
1: right and we end up trapped in this cycle where we're right we which speaks which goes back and speaks this this autonomy piece goes back and speaks to motivation I think yeah. and um, your your talk on motivation uh, to me it it says it in a nutshell so we as family members are trying all we can to motivate them but it doesn't seem like anything that we do uh, helps to motivate them in the way that we think that is necessary and then um, but actually maybe if we were to give up or help to empower them to have some autonomy, right? That...
2: Yes, and at the same time, I think that that what you've learned and why I'm such a, a, a big fan of craft is that CRAFT understands motivation a bit differently than, than I think some of the other types of interventions where we overwhelm somebody and say, look, if you don't go to treatment, you know, here's what's gonna happen. I love CRAFT because it operates motivationally on a different level. And so what you learn from CRAFT is a bunch of tools and techniques to really, in some ways, increase the internal motivation of your loved one to make a good decision for themselves instead of externally pushing and trying to motivate by begging, pleading, threatening craft is doing the opposite. It's actually through your behaviors and what you do as a parent, you're rearranging the environment in a way that increases their internal motivation. So they can say, you know, I think I need to do something about this. I think I might want to go to treatment and the autonomy piece of my program comes in that says, okay, there are a number of options for treating addiction. And you, as the person going into this process, should have some autonomy over picking what you want to do. I mean, a good example would be addiction medicines. I I always believe that people should know what those options are, but that the patient should always have the option of choosing and picking whether they want to use a medicine or not, if it happens to be available for their particular addiction. So that's, again, another piece of this autonomy is what we want to do is say, it's up to you to choose. My job is to help you understand as best I can the nature of what you're struggling with and what the best options are for you. And then you get to decide what you wanna do.
1: Right, it's really about empowering the individual, which I, which I wish that like when, going back to let's say an emergency room visit, you know, there's so much stigma. There's, there's so um, such a struggle within the emergency room and that whole system that why would an individual, if they're given the option to go to treatment, and really that's the only option. The option that they give you at the end of an emergency room visit is, here's some pamphlets to some meetings, and do you want treatment? And everybody knows that means going into detox, Mm -hmm. right? And possibly going away for a period of time. How much nicer would it be if you had an emergency room nurse empower you and say you know there's lots of options have you seen this have you Absolutely. seen the five actions program yep. right? i
2: couldn't i couldn't agree more because i think you know when somebody is in the emergency room again it's an emergency by by nature there's sort of a trauma there that's why they're there that's not the time to really you, you know you want to be calm in your body to be able to think through things so but that is a good time to say listen, I'd like, to, I'd like to have you be aware of a program that you know we can get it on your phone right now, you can download it, you can take it with you. And you know, when you're feeling better, I'd like you to just check this program out and it will tell you a little bit more about the nature of this problem and different types of treatment options. I, I, I wanna be clear, the five actions is not a substitute for traditional treatment, for face-to-face treatment. It is, it is an alternative type of care. We talk about levels of care and when we talk about levels of care, we're talking about, you know, at the highest level is hospitalization and detox. And from there, people go into residential treatment, which would be sort of the highest, um, you know, res- uh, uh, addiction treatment specific. And then from residential, there's intensive outpatient to outpatient. Um, so within this en- entire range, that's our, our traditional addiction treatment system. Uh, but as we've been talking about, it has, it has some challenges. The, the benefit of online types of programs, not only five actions, but there's a variety of other programs that are emerging coming into the marketplace, is that they offer, I think, an alternative way for people to engage in understanding addiction and understanding interventions and treatments. Um, and, they're, and they're very powerful. And I think their time has come. Um, the overarching term we use is digital health. But within digital health, the more specific term that we're starting to use is, is called digital therapeutics. Um, and, you know, in some ways we're kind of borrowing off of pharmaceutical products. Some of the companies are actually that are building digital therapeutics have, have actually in some ways tooled their companies off of pharmaceutical companies where they are taking a digital therapeutic, they're running trials, they're submitting that data to the to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA to try to get a, an approval for their product. Uh, But we are absolutely in the age now where we are going to start seeing more and more digital health or digital therapeutic tools out in the marketplace. One of the big differentiators for digital therapeutics is the idea that, you know, if you think about digital health being education, e-learning platforms, which is really more where I would put five actions right now. Digital therapeutics are the idea that there is a digital online app intervention that we actually have evidence to show that it changes behavior. Right now, there are very, very few programs out on the market. None that I know, there's a few that have some evidence in the addiction space, but this is an area where um, there's not a lot of, of research that's been done that shows that these programs actually work to change behavior. That's where we're headed. But right now, I would say that, that, the, that the, what people have access to is more digital health, and there's a, there's a variety of options that are coming out there. Um, and we're going to see in the near future more and more of these programs uh, being evaluated rigorously by science, and, and they're going to start separating out ones that really work to help people change their behavior from other programs um, that, are, that are coming into the marketplace that don't seem to do a whole lot.
0: You are listening to Coming Up For Air, sponsored in part by alliesinrecovery.net. Here is a testimonial from an Allies member.
1: I'm a member of Allies in Recovery, and this site's been one of my best sources for support. I recommend it to all my family members that I encounter on this journey with our loved ones in addiction. I agree with Dominique that you are taking care of yourself when you share on this site. I originally began practicing uh, craft to help my son, but I found that it's helped me as much by learning to control my emotions so that the highs and the lows are less extreme and therefore less exhausting to me.
0: Let's return to the conversation you're listening to on Coming Up for Air, produced in partnership with alliesinrecovery.net. John I had a question for you um, going back to when you were um, when we were talking a bit about how the five actions program is is broken, how you break it down and what the kind of main sections are. Yeah. Um, I'm co-hosting today because of my role at allies in recovery. I'm a senior editor and I've been um, with the with the organization for five years um, and so craft is has been making its way kind of under my skin and um, and into my heart uh, over the over the years and it also uh, so happens that my ex husband the father of my um, two eldest children suffers from um, alcohol issues um, and so my interest is is twofold. Um, uh, I wanted to ask whether the, the focus, whether for you, um, part of the reason that you focus so much uh, at the beginning of the program on uh, childhood or adolescent trauma, the um, ACEs and all, does that have to do with um, creating compassion for yourself uh, as the, the, the person using the program, the, the person with the substance or other addiction um, issue?
2: Well, I, I think it starts with the idea that one of the things we know about a good life is that it's built around relationships. There's a wonderful TED talk. Uh, I think it's about a 10 minute talk about the Harvard study that's been going on for 80 years, where uh, every year they've been interviewing this cohort of people. And you know one of the biggest findings that came out of that study was that when you get to the end of your life and you look back, one of the things that you'll say is that it's the relationships that make my life. So I focus a lot in the five actions on on, on what happens with relationships early on that goes south. And why is it that people choose to enter into relationships with addictions versus people? So one of the big leverage points that a lot of people are are not aware of, I'll talk just briefly about it, is the idea of attachment theory and attachment. This is one of the longest, oldest, uh, Longest-standing theories we have on human relationships comes from John Bowlby. But what's so powerful about this theory is the idea that we all have an attachment style, and that style is in place at around 18 months of age. So just like we inherit, uh, you know, our genes from our parents and grandparents, and we have a set of genes that can contribute to addiction, in some ways we inherit an attachment style. And there are four different attachment styles. Um, for about 60% of people in the United States, they have, they have what we would call an a secure attachment style. And for 40%, they have what we would call an insecure attachment style, which in some ways for those folks opens the door for starting to go down a path and struggling with relationships. Um, the ingredients of relationships that, that we need early in life, these, these attachment ingredients um, they start off with safety, that in order for us to, to make our way in the world, we have to feel safe. The second is that we need emotional attunement. So early on in life, part of this the, these critical attachment ingredients is as parents, how do we emotionally attune to our children? How do we learn to work with emotion? The third is self-soothing, the ability that when we get worked up and we get anxious, when we get overwhelmed, we have an ability to soothe ourselves. The fourth ingredient is what we call this gleam in the eye, which is the idea that every little kid needs to look up at their parents and see that they're loved, that, that they have worth, just for being, just for existing, that they have worth. And the fifth ingredient is self-development. The idea that parents pick up on the natural talents and skills of a child and then potentiate those skills in their life. Um, no parent gets all of those ingredients right. What, what, what we need is enough of those ingredients that help us to form a sense of of attachment. And then we go into the world and we have relationships with people. So uh, when you take attachment and then on top of that, we look at different types of adverse childhood experiences and trauma, a lot of that sets the stage for our engagement in the world and engaging with people. And when we don't have enough of those ingredients and we come out of the gates with insecure attachment, on top of that we have trauma and we start struggling in relationships,
1: so really, this piece of it uh, is more is really about understanding what what is driving the individual, right? Yeah, it's it, getting it, to it, the root of it.
2: Yeah, I like this. You know, addictions don't just come out of nowhere. There there's origins to them, um, and 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 I think it becomes important. These the, the origins of addiction are are these leverage points going back to kind of my my academic work in system science when people show up for treatment, they have all kinds of things going on. I remember uh, you know, one patient who had all kinds of different diagnoses and disorders. And I remember using her as an example as I was talking with a bunch of graduate students and saying, out of all these different issues, what do you think was the one issue that made a difference in her life? And all these hands raised and all of the obvious things people said, they said, oh, how about the addiction, the sexual trauma? We went all over the map. It turned out that the one issue that really made a difference for this patient was an undiagnosed sleep apnea this was a patient who came in was always tired but had no idea that they had this one undiagnosed issue and so once she had that addressed and she had energy in her body everything else started to fall into place she had energy she was able to go to groups and treatments. she was able to engage in a lot of stuff that just didn't happen because she didn't know that you know, she just she just grown accustomed to this is the way I'm in my body. Like I'm I'm always exhausted and tired. That's just who I am. So I think again that that attachment trauma, Aces, co-occurring disorders. When people have a a, a you know they really truly have an anxiety disorder or depression, but it doesn't get picked up early in childhood, and then somebody learns that they can take a drug and that actually makes that issue better. Mm. In some ways, again, that's adaptive. So. It's true that that part of our work is to go back and say, where did this come from? And where are these leverage points that we can start looking at to kind of pull back what's driving the addiction? I think one of the challenges for people in recovery is that if they put most of their focus on the addiction itself and very little on what were sort of the origins or those early leverage points, they really remain at risk for relapse at some point. Mm
0: John would you say you have there's an ideal utilizer for your program or when you were creating it who who were you targeting and who do you think it works best for
2: sure I, I you know I think going back to the levels of care, you know my my program is is really designed for somebody that um, doesn't need detoxification they're going into a hospital or going into residential treatment. Um, it's, it's designed for somebody mostly who is still engaged in the world, who's working, who's busy, who's trying to manage a family, who's doing a bunch of things. And they're saying, you know, I, am not really sure I want to go to treatment and I'm not really sure I have a problem. And so again, this is low hanging fruit because they can take it with them. They can watch a few videos. They can kind of test the waters a little bit and start saying, huh, maybe there is something here that I need to look at a little bit more. Um, so I, I would say also, um, the The program is in English right now, so uh, I, I there are transcripts available, but I would say that uh, in the future, you know, we would like to to have it in other languages. But right now, it would be mostly for um, uh, for people who speak English. Yeah. And I, I will say, um, you know, when I built this program, I, I wrote the scripts. I went into a studio. I spent about a year building this program. I went in on the weekends and I did these videos, and um, so I'm, I'm aware today, uh, the fact that I'm a white guy and there's a lot of me on these videos, even though we've tried to incorporate and, and, and there's some interviews and some things that come in a bit that um, the th- part of this program comes at it from my perspective as a white male. And I know right now in our society, there's a lot of things emerging right now around the idea of race relations and us looking at kind of the entire way, uh, uh, you know, culture in a different way. And I, I, I'm, I'm aware that I think this first version of the program, um, it, it, it comes from my perspective and I think in the future that needs to change. and It needs to broaden uh, and I'm aware of that. And I just put that out there that um, th- That that needs to happen. Um, but I also put out there the idea that we also know that addiction cuts across all races, all genders, everything that, that it's not something that um, that discriminates everybody, all, you know, all personality types uh, struggle with addiction. So in some ways, the content and the idea behind these interventions, the idea behind attachment comes across to everything. So there's a piece of this program in terms of the content and the ideas um, that that I think are universal. They're, 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 they cut across all humans. And yet there's other pieces of this program that I, I do believe, um, Uh, that need need more, that needs, uh, I I think some new pieces need to come in.
0: And do you feel that uh, aside from the English language nature of the site at this point, do you feel like um, it's United States specific or? or...
2: Not necessarily. I I think, uh, again, you know, clearly that's been my context in which I've been raised and lived in the United States. I I think in some ways what I've tried to do in each of these videos is to to tell stories as much as I can and to try to take what we've learned from research um, and put that into a language that uh, as best as possible can reach the broadest audience. That said, I I do think that um, we've done some assessment and I think the educational level is probably more high school in terms of, you know, maybe eighth, ninth grade when you actually look at the content and the words used. Um, I know in the United States that we've got, I think, what, 25-30% of people that drop out of high school. And so it may be that, um, you know, for people living on the streets and, and not having a lot of education, that parts of this program could be challenging for them. So I would not want anybody to think that this program is, up, you know, um, it, it is, it has the same utility across, uh, across all populations. If you're a parent and you're worried about your child, your spouse or a loved one, I want to encourage you to log on to the Five Actions program and you're going to get access to about six and a half hours of some really uh, interesting content that can help you to understand the nature of addiction and a variety of solutions for this problem. One of the unique things about this program is that it goes beyond addiction and it talks about a variety of other facts around attachment, adverse childhood experiences, co-occurring disorders, in ways that I think can empower you to understand better what your loved ones struggling with and also give you a variety of ideas about different tools that can help in terms of interventions. You you can go through the program in any order that you want. It may be that after you've gone through it, you'll, you'll know better how to introduce it to your loved one because you know them better than anybody. And it may be as simple as just saying, hey, I checked out this new program and I'd like you to just be aware of it and take a look at it when you have a chance. The fact that it's online, it's 24-7, it's just a domain name, they can pull it up on their phone, their, their tablet or their computer makes it really easy to access.
0: Let's return to the conversation you're listening to on Coming Up for Air, produced in partnership with alliesinrecovery.net. Well,
1: I have a question. So um, I, I, I guess maybe it's a bit of a dilemma. What would you tell families How would you tell families to present this program to their loved one with substance use disorder? Because I have this this belief, like I get very nervous um, helping families to be aware of what's available for their loved one because, because I find that they take that and they run with it and they're, oh, look, there's this, there's this, there's this, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I think it would be much better if we kind of sat back and waited for mm-hmm. opportunities to introduce things. So I think this would be a great resource for someone to um, offer to their loved one. But just give us some tips on how we could do that.
2: I, 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 yeah, I I'm following up on what you're saying, I think that one of the benefits of this is that it's just such low hanging fruit and it's easy for, for somebody that cares about a loved one to say, hey, you know, I've learned about a new program um, and it's free and you can go on and you can watch some videos and you can check out some stuff. And I just wanted to make it available to you. I think that it might be something that could help you. If we go back and we think about sort of our traditional addiction treatment system, I think for, for the majority of people, there is some sense of what that is, whether that comes through the media, through movies. Um, but we have a sense of, of what it means to go to self-help groups and what it means to go off to a residential program and be locked down. And so for people who are struggling that have in some ways uh, that this ambivalence that, yeah, I, I, I if you really want to know down deep, I do know that there's something there that I could probably use help. I, I, I know I've got a bit of a problem. The flip side is, I know what the options are. I'm not interested in doing any of those things. And so people kind of stay stuck. So what I like about this is the idea to say, you know, instead of going to the extreme and going into our traditional treatment system, this allows you to enter into kind of a new tool that, again, you can use it whenever you want. And I think one of the things we've learned from people with addiction is that it's about motivation and that motivational window. We never know when it opens up. Um, back when I was working uh, in in community-based treatment at the clinic, one of the things that we really were aware of is that when the person called and said, you know, I I want to see if I can get an intake and get in, that we've actually done research. And every day that goes by that you don't have that person in the clinic doing the assessment is a day that they likely aren't going to come back. Those windows open up and they can be very, very small. So the idea behind this program is a person... They they can have the the domain name and they can put it on their phone or they can just have that link somewhere. And and when that window opens up, that that Sunday morning when they wake up and they're feeling horrible and, you know, their mom told them about this program and it's like, I got nothing else to do. And they log on and they just sit there and they start watching a few videos. If some of that material starts resonating with them, they can say, huh, I've never heard some of this stuff before. And that can lead them deeper into starting to look at their behavior in a deeper way. And ideally, getting them back to this idea that you need people in your life, you need healing relationships to to move your life forward. And that doesn't necessarily mean you enter into the formal addiction treatment system. It may just mean that you need to start looking at going to self-help groups or looking at other options, um, you know, I put in the program, you know, yoga is, uh, is, is something that I'm a big fan of going, finding a good yoga studio, finding a sangha, and starting to just work with the body in yoga that can be incredibly healing for people.
0: So um, I've heard this, your program referred to as self-treatment. I know that Dominique has used that term um, to talk about the the site, the program. And I'm wondering, um, this is to add on to to Lori's question about, um, you know, craft shows us as the family member when to know uh, when that moment of opportunity is actually presenting itself and when it might be appropriate to come in with a couple of treatment options. Um, so would you agree with this, this uh, label of self-treatment? Because it in listening to you talk about it uh it also seems to me that in a way it's almost like like a like a triage or like a a way to to almost determine do i have a problem um do i need additional help
2: yeah i i have struggled with Again, kind of coming up with the right language. I think as a field, this whole idea of digital health and digital therapeutics is still emerging, and we're trying to develop a language around it. When I say self-treat, um, in some ways, it gets back to I think, Gloria, you bringing up this idea of autonomy. That that I like the idea that for the person who's struggling, you're in the driver's seat, and it's it's your life. Nobody else can lead it for you. So you have to decide what you want to do, how you want to go about um working with this particular issue in your life you can choose to ignore it and if you ignore your addictions you're going to have consequences and those consequences are going to emerge over time Um, if you choose to engage and want to do something about it i feel that my uh the best that i can do is to help you understand better the nature of this problem and what are the different interventions and treatments that can help you so by self-treat the idea we, we, we know that um, the majority of people who overcome addiction do so without professional help. There's been a bunch of naturalistic studies. How do they do that? Well, they, they utilize a variety of processes of change. They do things to help move their themselves to different behaviors because those other behaviors become more important for them. Um, So, within this program, within the the different buckets of resolve and manage and create, what I've offered is a variety of tools that that, that we've utilized in treatment, some of those tools not very often, um, and, and said, well, there's a lot of evidence that a variety of these different tools, if you use these tools and you use these on your own, going to yoga classes, learning how to focus. Um, you know, there's there's trauma-releasing exercises that you can learn through some books and videos to start learning how to get trauma out of the body. There's a variety of things that if you go and you learn these and they resonate with you and you start doing those, um, we actually know that we have evidence that that will reduce your symptoms and improve the quality of your life. At the same time, I think what I've tried to do in this program is reframe treatment a bit from this idea that if you're thinking about it as traditional addiction treatment, residential or going into and sitting always in groups, that maybe you need to pull back and think about treatment as sort of a much broader health system in Mm -hmm. in the fact that there are private practice clinicians, there's psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, counselors. There's a broad range of people that you can access for specific things. It may be that as you work through this program, that you realize, wow, I'm, I'm I really in some ways, you know, never knew I had insecure attachment. And so you go and you find a therapist that has a particular treatment that I talked about in the program that helps remap attachment. Actually, within months, not years and years, and and so you seek out somebody for that specific purpose. That's very different than just sort of showing up to a, a, a broad-based addiction treatment program. Whereas a lot of people who've done that say, you know, I could lead these treatment programs. I've been to five, six, seven treatment programs. I know the content. And what I'm saying is, well, the treatment system is much, much more broad. And maybe you need to think about other people in that system that specifically can help you manage trauma, manage attachment, help with co-occurring disorders. Maybe you see a nurse practitioner that becomes part of your care team and helps you with medicines. There, there's, a, there's a newer, I think today, we're starting to appreciate um, the, uh, the idea and the research that's coming out in plant-based medicine. Um, I think the FDA is very uh, close to approving MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. I've been to a number of workshops. Um, and so this emergence of plant-based medicine with our traditional types of treatments, um, some of the latest research applying plant-based medicine to addictions actually shows some really interesting and positive outcomes. So I think what you're going to see as we go into the future is that our traditional system as we know it is going to broaden. And for somebody who's using my online program in this self-treatment way and learning about a variety of different options and treatments, it it means I can go into the treatment system but I can go in in a way that I I didn't really know that was even part of the system. That's the whole idea we have now, MDMA is approved treatment for PTSD. And if I really have linked the fact that my addiction for years and years is because of untreated trauma, then maybe it's not so much about me continuing to go in and out of treatment to stop drinking. It's about me ultimately figuring out how to address trauma. Right. Um,
1: you, you know, that it, it's interesting. It, it took me a long time to kind of come to this conclusion that um, – and seeing multiple, multiple counselors, um, not just individually, but we, we would go as a family. Sometimes I would go individually. Sometimes my children would go individually, but it took me a long time to kind of come to this conclusion that anytime I wanted to go see a counselor, a therapist, that 90% of the time I was going in willy-nilly with absolutely no plan in place. I had, you know, I knew I wasn't feeling good or I knew things weren't, we weren't
2: doing well.
1: Right. right? But I had no understanding of going in there and and, and it was just willy nilly. They had to figure it out. They had to come up with something which 99% of the time they didn't. But now, now, and, and I often, when I'm talking to families and you know, I will bring up that we should, You know there are many times when we should go see professionals but i try and bring up this idea of go in with a plan go in confidently go in with you know what this is specifically what i'm struggling with and this is what i need you to help me with
2: right just yeah so so let me make a comment about that because a lot of times people seek out therapy because of a problem that that they have and so they go in to see a therapist and they say my problem is drinking or it's depression or it's trauma and part of seeking out help is the idea that i i understand my problem in a particular way but despite everything that i know about it i don't seem to be able to solve it so as a therapist the idea is to listen and say i hear what you're saying about this problem And I wanna add something to it. So for me as a clinician, a lot of times when people come in and they say, it's all about the addiction and I'm drinking or it's about the heroin or the pills or whatever that is, I'm often saying yes. And it's also potentially about attachment, adverse childhood experiences, it's about trauma, it's about some of these other things that it sounds to me as I'm getting to know you that, that you've never heard about or you've never addressed in any of your treatments. And often then people have kind of the light bulb come on. You see, sort of like, yeah, that's right. I've never heard about this stuff before. The other comment I want to make about therapy and treatment is that, you know, there's this magic ingredient of relationship. Having a therapeutic relationship with somebody is so important. When we talked about earlier about these three pathways, the relationship expectations and evidence-based practices, um, it turns out, and I I don't want to... Kind of get get too statistical, but when we look at the outcomes of reduction in symptoms and an enhanced quality of life, and we look at those three pathways, 70% of outcomes comes from the relationship that a person has with the therapist. About 27, 28% comes from having an alignment between the problem and the solution, the expectations, which means that in that third pathway of, of evidence-based practices, it's less than 1%. So, just to be clear what that means, it doesn't mean that the, that the actual evidence based practices aren't important. What it means is that we don't have one practice or one treatment that is better than all others. So, the variability, the differences between treatments when it comes to outcomes is, is less than 1%. What that means is it doesn't matter which one you pick, as long as you have those other two pathways in place. And the one that you pick you go fully into it so if you want to use 12-step facilitation great if you're a cognitive behavioral therapist great whatever that is it's really important that you go into it but the idea that we're going to say that one treatment or one program is better than another absolutely no research for that any program if, if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out a treatment program or going to see some some program for your kid and they're saying we have the best program we have the best outcomes we're a lot better than everybody else I would run the other way, because in some ways, uh, there's just no evidence that we have one program or one treatment that's better than all others. The last thing I want to say and really emphasize is that within that relationship of therapy, a lot of times when I first meet with people and I start working with them and I say, tell me about the therapy you've had, tell me about the treatment, and they'll start talking about it and I'll say, so has it all been talk therapy? And they'll look at me like, what do you mean? What other kind of therapy is there? And I'll say, well, you know, part of therapy can also be somatic. It can be about talking about the body. So, in, so right now as I'm talking with you, I can say, let's just stop for a minute. What are you noticing in your body? What are you feeling right now as you're just sitting there with me? And for a lot of people, that's a very different experience. They're used to thinking about therapy and treatment as talk therapy. I'm going to go in, I have a problem, and we're just going to talk about it. And one of the things we know about good outcomes is that part of it is getting into the body and working with emotion and being able to work somatically with the body. Clearly that is the answer with trauma. You cannot, you cannot treat trauma if you don't work with the body because it's in some ways in the body. But I would go so far as to say even beyond trauma, when we're talking about even addiction and I'm talking with somebody, part of working with the body is to help them to access their shame and their grief and not just talk about it, not just say, well, I'm bad, I'm broken to, you know, in their head, but I want them to stop and move into their body and actually what is it, what's your experience feeling the grief and the loss of what happened to you as a child? As we're exploring when you first started drinking and we back that up and we look at what happened to you right before that, what, what are you feeling right now in your body? What's emerging in your emotions? That, that in some ways is the magic of treatment, is going in and starting to work with emotions. And I, I just want to be really clear about that, and make sure people understand that there is something other than just talk therapy. It's always a blend. It's not always emotion, but it's a blend of talk therapy and working with the body.
0: Excellent points, John. Um, I'm thinking that we should possibly wrap up uh, sometime very soon because we're we're uh, a bit past an hour and. I have a feeling that there's just so much, um, you have such a, a depth of passion on this topic. You've poured so much of your experience um, into the Five Actions program. I have a feeling that we'll, we'll be back um, mm-hmm. talking with you some more. I hope so. Uh, in fact, I think it would be great at some point uh, for Dominique and you to have a, a conversation uh, on the podcast as well. Um, you've been colleagues and collaborators for, for years now. And as Lori said earlier, um, now that your your program is up and running, uh, we really have this sister site uh, situation going on that we hope to be able to, uh, to use to your advantage as well to, you know, uh, get the word out to all of our membership and uh, having, having watched not all of your modules, but, a, a good amount so far. Uh, I want to say that I'm really excited about it. Um, I think Thank that you. the I think that the reach is potentially huge and the 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 effects are, are going to be huge. Um, as long as the people can get to the people who need it can get to your site. Right. Right. Um, and uh and in my family we've already started uh we've already started watching together. Um so we'll keep you posted on that. I wanna thank you so much for, for being here to, to talk with us today.
2: Absolutely, I'm glad to do it. And uh, it's been a, a wonderful partnership with Allies in Recovery. And I, I think uh, you know the benefit is that we both have sort of these digital platforms that can reach a lot of people that, um, uh, you know, in the past haven't been able to access these tools. So that's very exciting to me, uh, very powerful. And uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time to, to ask questions and to learn more about the program. I'm excited to see where things are headed.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, John. Thank you for this conversation. It was great.
2: Absolutely.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesandrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Michael Mauboussin for the original music composition.